Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 244. We'll continue in the book of 2 Chronicles with a brief summary of chapters 20 through 23 and follow with some thoughts about what happens when you indulge your hunger for power. If all the wars in the previous episode were insufficient, we begin this episode with another round of conflict, this time between, quote, a great multitude from Ammon and Moab across the Dead Sea who've come to attack Jerusalem. Does Jehoshaphat launch a counterattack? Well, kinda. He declares a public assembly and fast and then addresses God, quote, O Adonai, God of our fathers, you are not God in the heavens, and you rule over all the kingdoms of the nations, and in your hand are power and might, and none can stand up against you. With the people present, God's spirit overcomes Yehaziel ben Zechariah, who tells the assembled, quote, You do not fear and do not be terrified by this great multitude, for not yours is the battle but God's. And so the following day, Jehoshaphat and a motley assortment of civilians, soldiers, and choristers march into the desert to face down the onslaught. The king rallies his people, quote, Hear me, Judah and dwellers of Jerusalem, trust in Adonai, your God, and staunchly trust in his prophets and prosper. And so everyone starts singing, and quote, Adonai set ambushes against the Ammonites and Moab and Mount Seir who were coming to Judah, and they were routed. <laughs> and the winners gathered up all the spoils of war, which were substantial. <laughs> and King Jehoshaphat ruled as king in a great time of peace and prosperity. And the chronicler could have wrapped up the matter in the usual fashion, except for one little thing, quote, And afterward, Jehoshaphat joined forces with Ahaziah, king of Israel. He acted wickedly, and he joined forces with him to build ships to go to Tarshish, and they made the ships in Etzion Geber, and Eliezer, son of Dodava, from Maresha, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, As you have joined forces with Ahaziah, Adonai shall wreck what you have made. And the ships were broken up, and were unable to go to Tarshish. Chapter 21 begins with the death of Jehoshaphat and the ascendance of Jehoram to the throne of Judah, but not without a lot of bloodletting. The chronicler is less fussed about this and about what follows, quote, And he went in the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for Ahab's daughter was wife to him, and he did what was evil in the eyes of Adonai. And yet God does not smite Jehoram or his kingdom because of promises made to David, yada, 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 but it doesn't mean that Jehoram is going to coast either. Quote, And Edom has rebelled from under the hand of Judah until this day. Then did Libna rebel at that time from under his hand, for he had forsaken Adonai, God of his fathers. He also made high places in the hill country of Judah and led the dwellers of Israel to go whoring and made Judah stray. Well, this situation cannot stand, so Eliyahu the prophet writes the king a letter, which informs the king that, quote, because you have not gone in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father and in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but you went in the ways of the kings of Israel and led the dwellers of Jerusalem to go whoring as the house of Ahav led them to go whoring, and even your brothers of your father's house who were better than you, did you kill. Adonai is about to afflict your people and your wives and all your possessions with a great plague. And as for you, you will be stricken with great illnesses, 
with illness of the bowels till your bowels come out because of the illness after days upon days. But before that happens, the Philistines and Arabs raid Judah and loot the palace of the king. And then Yehoram is afflicted with the galloping squirts and dies. And there's one final indignity, quote, 32 years old he was when he became king, and eight years he was king in Jerusalem, and he went off in unseemly fashion. And they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Chapter 22 introduces us to Yehoram's heir Ahaziahu, the youngest of the sons. And I'm sure you're wondering how it is that the youngest son became the new king. Well, as the chronicler tells us, quote, for the band that had come into the camp with the Arabs had killed all the older ones. He, like his father, quote, went in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother would counsel him to act wickedly. Ladies and gentlemen, it's about to go down. So when Ahaziahu visits his relative and ally, Yehoram, son of Ahav, he is caught up in the latter's war against Hazael, king of Aram. The war does not end well for either. Yehoram is wounded, Ahaziahu goes to visit him while he recuperates, and quote, Yehu was carrying out judgment against the house of Ahab, and he found the commanders of Judah and Ahaziah's nephew ministering to Ahaziah, and he killed them. And they searched for Ahaziah and captured him when he was hiding in Samaria. And they brought him to Yehu, and he was put to death. And they buried him, for they said, He is the son of Jehoshaphat who sought Adonai with all his heart. But there was no one in the house of Ahaziah to muster strength for the kingship. Ahaziahu was king for one year. So Ahaziahu's mother, Atalia, moves into action. She has all of her grandchildren, potential heirs to Ahaziahu, murdered, and takes the crown for herself. Only Yoash, who is but a baby, survives, hidden by Yehoram's sister and the Kohen Yehoyada's wife in the house of God for six years, while Atalia rules as queen. Chapter 23, time jumps to the seventh year of Yoash's concealment, and Yehoyada is quietly organizing elements of the army and the Levites to depose Atalia. He posts his men in various locations around the capital while bringing Yoash out of hiding and to a ceremony where he is declared king of Judah in the temple court. The crowd goes wild, and Atalia, hearing the cheering crowd, quote, rent her garments and said, a plot, a plot. The chronicler concludes the chapter as follows, quote, and all the people of the land rejoiced while the town was quiet, and Atalia they had put to death by the sword. <laughs> had a more Games of Thronesy episode as this, perhaps in the original telling in Second Kings, but you have to admit that there is a lot more stabbing and murder in this episode than usual. And it's worth pausing for a moment to consider who orders it and who gets it. A lion doesn't concern himself with the opinions of a sheep. We've already experienced what happens to those who run afoul of the Tanakh's basic axiom. Some died by arrow, some by foot disease, some by rebellious bowels. But usually it was one person, and perhaps it was in the context of a war. So there were other fatalities at the time. But again, that's to be expected, isn't it? There's a war on, and whether it's justified or not, folks will die. But what we have here in this episode is different. Or is it? Legendary are the depredations of the Assyrians. 
Much Assyrian artwork shows its soldiers flaying its victims. They would have large-scale deportations, burn their victims, and tear out the tongues of people who crossed them. Assyrian King Ashurbanipal II had the following carved into a banquet stella about his suppression of a revolt in the city of Tella in 883 BCE. Quote, I built a pillar over his city gate, and I flayed all the chiefs who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skin. Some I walled up within the pillar, some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes, and others I bound to stakes round the pillar. And I cut the limbs of the officers, of the royal officers who had rebelled. Many captives from among them I burned with fire, and many I took as living captives. From some I cut off their noses, their ears, their fingers. Of many I put out the eyes. I made one pillar of the living and another of heads. And I bound their heads to tree trunks round the city. Their young men and maidens I burned in the fire. In another inscription describing the sack of the Elamite city of Susa, in 647 BCE, Ashurbanipal I brags about plundering the city. Quote, Susa, the great holy city, abode of their gods, seat of their mysteries, I conquered. I entered its palaces, I opened their treasuries, where silver and gold, goods and wealth were amassed. I destroyed the ziggurat of Susa. I smashed its shining copper horns. I reduced the temples of Elam to naught. Their gods and goddesses I scattered to the winds. The tombs of their ancient and recent kings I devastated. I exposed to the sun and I carried away their bones toward the land of Ashur. I devastated the provinces of Elam and on their lands I sowed salt. This kind of wanton brutality and the shamelessness about publicizing it was standard practice in Assyria and it gave the Assyrians quite a reputation. So it's no surprise, as I discussed at length in episode 144, that Nahum celebrates the defeat of the enemies of God's people, especially Assyria. But what's the essence of the criticism leveled there? That the Assyrians are outside the covenant, or that they were savages, or both? As we've said many times in this podcast, the voice of the Tanakh generally presents a view of history that sees foreign nations as tools of the divine. If we behave, God puts these nations at our disposal, or at least calms our borders with them. But when we misbehave, we are vulnerable to their attack. The man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. We see this play out in this episode. When the king is a good boy, we prosper. And when the king behaves like the kings of Israel and does not walk in the path, yada yada yada, it's open season. But, and here's a question only someone with a modern or postmodern sensibility might ask, do these nations have any agency in this grand scheme? It kind of sounds like they don't. And if that's the case, can we fault them for what they do if what they do is part of God's plan for us? One could ask similar questions about Pharaoh and the story of the enslaved Jews, where Exodus tells us explicitly that God hardened Pharaoh's heart against Moshe's demands. Can Pharaoh really be blamed for what happened to Egypt and its people if he's just following the program? Can we then fault the Assyrians for flaying and beheading and plundering? The answer is yes. Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, Nahum tells us, is a, quote, city of crime, utterly treacherous, full of violence, where killing never stops. So now, with that in mind, let's return to our Game of Thrones here in Second Chronicles. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. There is no middle ground. The shine came off Jehoshaphat toward the end of his reign, with Judah's increasing entanglements with the idolatrous kingdom of Israel. The sinking of some of the Judahite fleet was just a taste of what was to come. 
The palace intrigue that ensues in chapter 22 plays out with a particular cruelty, viciousness, and seeming randomness. The house of Ahaziahu will fall, but it will not merely topple. It will be kicked over and kicked some more while it's down and ground into the dust, leaving no trace or remnant. Perhaps what is remarkable about this is that it's so unremarkable. What do you expect will happen when you have a bunch of power-hungry people playing a game of musical chairs? We saw it dramatized in season after season across Westeros, and we see it here, too, as well as in the annals of practically every empire and monarchy and government across the planet then and now. Humans crave power and will use it to gain more power. But weren't we supposed to be better than this? We're God's chosen. We have God's teachings and commandments that are supposed to keep all of this in check. How can we read what happens, especially between Atalia and her grandchildren, as anything less than a potent reminder that despite the rhetoric of Jewish exceptionalism, we too, as our leaders, can be as venal and power-mad as the next nation, whether real or imagined, and do terrible things in pursuit of that power? Except that the Tanakh has a quick rejoinder to all of that. Yes, the power-hungry want to eat. That's natural. But the righteous king is better. He has the book of Deuteronomy that he hand-wrote himself to remind him. He has restrictions on his personal freedoms as to how much wealth he can accrue and women he can marry that do not extend to his subjects. All to keep him in check. And when the king is in check, so are his people. And God rewards those that walk on the divine path. It's a shame that people keep forgetting that. And we can see in this episode what a price people pay when they indulge their more baser instincts. Foot ailments, explosive bowels, and family massacres. With more to follow. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 245, when we continue in Second Chronicles with chapters 24 through 27.